But it helpful to have that passage uh, open in front of you. How you lay things out in your home is significant. Now, I'm not talking about Feng Shui or Marie Kondo or Mukenschmatt or anything like that. I'm just saying how you lay things out means something. It tells you something about us. There's a scene of a sitcom, Friends, where someone tells Joey, one of the characters, that she doesn't have a TV. Joey's response is, well, you don't own a TV. What's all your furniture pointed at? (laughs) And he makes a fair point there, doesn't he? No judgment. But furniture says something about what your life is like. There used to be living rooms were laid out around fireplaces. You know, you can tell that keeping warm was a big deal uh, in those days. Now, as we say, most of them are laid around the TV, telling you entertainment has sort of taken something. I think perhaps in the future they'll be laid out according to the best Wi-Fi signal. Uh, you know, sitting closest to the router. Who knows? But the layout of furniture is not random. And the same is true for what we've been seeing in the tabernacle in Exodus. Far from being sort of flung together, it's being carefully explained by God to Moses so that it might reflect and teach heavenly realities. It's supposed to remind you of the Garden of Eden in Genesis. It's supposed to remind you of the top of Mount Sinai here with Moses. It was supposed to be a sort of meeting place between heaven and earth. So far from this just being a sort of historical, interesting curiosity... It's actually telling us something about who we are and about how we enjoy fellowship with our Creator. This is actually telling us incredibly important truths, just in a way that we're not used to, in the layout of furniture. We started a couple of weeks ago in the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, and we saw how God would dwell there on the throne that is the Ark of the Covenant. Next, we moved out to the golden lampstand and the golden table in the next section, which is called the Holy Place. Last week, we looked at curtains. Yeah, we spent a whole week on curtains. But those curtains that separated off the different places in the tabernacle. And we saw how in Christ, the curtain has been torn down. And now access to God is possible through Christ. This week, we move outwards again. Out into the courtyard that surrounded the main tent that had the Holy of Holies and the holy place in it. And as we do, we'll begin to see what it takes to get into the presence of God, to enjoy fellowship with God himself. In other words, how do we get there? How do we get to heaven, so to speak? How do we get to that relationship with God? Well, the passage this morning starts with an altar, which is in the courtyard. We're going to start with the courtyard itself, just to sort of orientate us into what's happening. So first of all, uh, the courtyard approaching heaven. I won't read it to us again, but I actually have it open uh, in front of you. This chapter moves out another step into the area around the tent, uh, the courtyard. So we're dealing with this area here. Now we've dealt with a bit at the top uh, in the previous weeks. The courtyard, unlike the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, was accessible to God's people at large. And the items in the courtyard had to do with how God would deal with his people. Whereas the special tent at the back was a a sort of idealised picture, in the courtyard it's far far more about how God is meeting people where they're at. The two big features in the outer courtyard were the bronze altar and the bronze basin or sea. 
Most of the things here in the courtyard are bronze. If you remember last week, we said it's sort of like moving down the medals table at the Olympics. So, you know, gold was all the things in the, the temple, silver next, and then bronze. Here, all the things you'll notice are made uh, with bronze. The bronze altar was for sacrifices brought by the people, but also for sacrifices for the priests before they could move further up and into the, uh, the special tent. The bronze basin was there for ritual cleansing of the priests. Again, you would have to go through that before you went into the tent. So, uh, really, what we see in the outer courtyard is a sacrifice for sin and cleansing for impurity. That is God meeting us where we are. Uh, but here, we just get half the story. We just get uh, the bronze uh, altar. The other half, the bronze basin, even though it's right next to the, uh, the bronze altar, we won't deal with that until chapter 30. And the reason is it sort of forms a sandwich around the bit that's in between the, the courtyard. You get the courtyard and oil. They both appear at the, the ends of this section. The middle section is going to be dealing with the priests, which we'll look at uh, next time. But that thing around it, like that, was a way, uh, the ancient world's way of saying you're supposed to sort of look at them all together. All this bit is God dealing with us where we're at. So bear that in mind as we go through that we're getting just half the story here. But it does at least show us where we begin. This is where we come in as we enter uh, the, the outer courtyard. The, the court itself extended much further than the tent, uh, as you can see from the, the picture there. The court was about uh, four tennis courts laid side to side. So we're talking about quite a large area. Uh, around it were fine linen curtains, we're told. Uh, and in verse 18, we're told they're five cubits high. That's seven and a half feet, or if you're in uh, metric, that's 2.3 metres. So we're talking larger than a door. It'd be, be higher than the ceiling uh, of this room. In other words, there was no peaking over the top. Uh, one of the commentators likened it to a sort of cricket match where you have those sort of big things. But if you're in a house that's high enough, you can sort of peek over. There was no peaking over. It was enclosed and hidden away from general view, unless you came through the entrance. The entrance is decorated like the entrance to the tent within, with those coloured yarns. And again, as we saw last week, the entrance is from the east, like the Garden of Eden, which had an entrance from the east. And you have to move further and further west uh, as you went further in. Like the main tent, there were pillars to hang the curtains on, bronze bases, again touching the floor, as you'd expect. Silver at the top, probably because it's not touching uh, the earth, so far more precious. The main tent was to the far west. That was the top of the mountain. The holy place at first, where only some were allowed in this bit, and then the holy of holies right at the back. That was the top of the mountain. That was the, the very peak mirroring where only Moses uh, could go, and that only the high priest would eventually be able to go. That's the peak, if you like. That's where we're going, fellowship with God. But where does it start? Where does your journey begin? In the outer courtyard. And where does it begin in the outer courtyard? It begins at the altar, which is positioned right by the entrance. And so our second point this morning, there you go, you can see it on the diagram now. Uh, the altar, only through sacrifice. The altar, only through sacrifice. Again, this is verses 1 to 8, I won't read all the details again. Now when I say the word altar, I wonder what image comes to your mind. Probably something like this. I don't know why they're Christmas trees, I should have took a picture of Christmas, but, uh, or something like this, or, or something like that. 
That's what we sort of got used to, all ornate and, and beautiful and serene. But that's not the altar of the tabernacle. The altar that was used here was for animal sacrifice. So really it's more of a sort of mixture between a butcher's and a barbecue. That's really what we're talking about. It was a place where animals were killed, butchered up, and then burnt to varying degrees on an altar. So it's not really that picture of a peaceful, serene thing. It's more like an abattoir, really, as you approach it. But the message of the altar is simple. This is what it takes to deal with sin, in order that God might dwell with his people. The message of the altar is that death is needed, sacrifice is needed. Now there were five kinds of sacrifice to be offered according to Leviticus, but most of them involved the death and complete burning or roasting of an animal. Mo- uh, uh, after it, 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 they would do that after it had been butchered and its blood drained. It was a messy, gory place. But this is what Old Testament worship was like. And that is the word used in the Old Testament. This was worship. But it's a long way from what we think of worship now, isn't it? It would be a bit surprising to you if I got the barbecue out, uh, wouldn't it? Or, 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 you know, brought along everyone, you know, instead of bring a bottle, sort of bring a sheep uh, to you to the, the service in the morning. But worship, as we've been seeing in toast and training on a Sunday evening, is actually every part of our lives as a living sacrifice. It's actually bringing our lives to the altar. And that's much closer to, to the idea of taking up our cross, isn't it? Is much closer to Christ's sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice was, was a, 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 in a technical sense, was that same thing as here. A substitute that is killed and offered in the place of the worshipper. In that sense, the cross is, is a sort of altar on which Christ made the sufficient sacrifice himself. And if you think about it, that too is quite gory and bloody and messy. It sort of fits that picture that we follow through scripture. That's what sacrifices are. And that's why the altar is set up as it is. Now there's much debate about how this altar was put together. It's not immediately evident uh, where things such as the grating and the net were. Were they on the outside to catch things or, or underneath to allow sort of airflow? If you do barbecues, you know that these sort of things need it to keep the fire going. Or were they on the inside acting like a grill tray? Uh, or like you'd have in an oven? That option with the grill tray seems the most likely in terms of what they're doing. So it probably looks something a, a bit like this. And there's some reasons we can think that. It's more likely because if you read verse 1, the altar is to be made out of wood. Now think about that for a second. It's made for burning things on. That making the central part of the altar out of wood... But here wouldn't make a lot of sense, would it, really? Okay, so it's encased in bronze, but then why make it out of wood anyway? It just seems a really strange thing to do for a, a thing to burn things. More likely, that wood part was the frame around the outside, with the grill places in the middle and the fire lit underneath it. That's why it's referred to in verse 8 as hollow, with boards. That doesn't solve all the problems with the altar, though. The altar, the other issue we have is that the, he's given instructions to, write, to make the altar here, but we've already had instructions about how to make an altar. Back in Exodus 20. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place 
where I caused my name to remember, I will come to you and bless you. If you make for me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. But if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. So already, in the, law, the law hasn't said all that much, really, about this sort of thing. But it has actually told you what an altar should be like. Now, some try and put it together and claim that you'd sort of build uh, bits of, uh, of brick and earth and things underneath the, the space. Uh, or even that the frame itself was hollow so that you could sort of put stones into it. But there's no hint of that in the text. Better to see this as this is a one-of-a-kind altar. This is a special altar. And it's designed for the huge number of sacrifices that would be offered on it over its lifetime. Other simplest stone and earth altars would be built. So Joshua builds one, Gideon builds one, Samuel builds one, David builds one, Elijah builds one. There were enough times for, for enough, enough of a need for a specific command for you not to have to, you know, why on earth did they put that there in chapter 20? The whole point of this one is that it was unique. It was the only place where God at that time would truly dwell. So this was a special place. Another unique feature are the horns on the four corners. You can sort of see them here. Uh, if we put them there. <laughs> Those aren't mentioned in Exodus 20. It's not a sort of normal feature of an altar. No one's quite sure exactly what they were for. It's one of those ones where you sort of look and you read and everyone's got a different idea. They were used symbolically as a sign for a request of refuge or mercy. If you've been in life groups, that's what we've been seeing as they've been hanging on to the horns of the altar. That's what they're coming and hanging on to. Later on, they're used for attaching animals to. Sort of, you know, to, to like... like People who leave their dogs outside of shops, you know, sort of hang them up, not hang them up. They don't have a dog. Just, you know, tie, tie them up, that's the word I was looking for, uh, to the side of the shop. It was sort of put uh, to hold them there. But we don't know that that's what their purpose was. We just know that people did that. They used ceremonially in chapter 29, blood is applied to the horn specifically. So it's all a bit confusing. But I think there are two things in mind. Firstly, horns belong to the animal kingdom. Whereas in the tent of meeting, we've got those allusions to angels. Here in the outer courtyard, we have allusions to animals. The bronze basin in the temple would have bulls underneath it, holding it up, which sort of further adds to this picture. The outer courtyard is the court of man. And we are earthly creatures, not divine beings. We were made on, on day six, along with the cattle and the caterpillars. While we are special in God's sight... We are, in the end, made of the dust of the earth. And the outer courtyard reminds us of our relationship with our creator. Remember, this is where he deals with us as we are. And yet, on the other hand, it's quite like Eden, isn't it, in a way, to have beasts of the field that are here represented, uh, even in the, the place where God is. The second thing in mind is almost certainly, though, the sacrifice itself. Horns have only one mention in scripture up to this point, and it fits perfectly with the purpose of the altar. It's in Genesis 22, as Abraham goes to offer his son. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Horns in the Bible will go on to symbolise strength. But here, they more probably symbolise sacrifice. After all, that's what the altar is for. We've already talked about the way to look forward to Christ and his sacrifice. But the courtyard is a reminder of why it's needed. 
We're creaturely. We can't save ourselves. We're not God. We're sinful. We need a sacrificial substitute. God won't just sweep sin under the carpet. It has to be dealt with. There has to be justice. And the altar was a picture of the sacrifice that Christ would make in our place. Christ was killed and sacrificed on the cross. God's son instead of us. Like the ram caught in the thicket instead of Isaac. We need someone to stand in our place. Someone without a blemish. Someone without sin. And Christ was that one. The sacrifice made in our place. So the good news of the gospel is not that we're not as bad as we think we are. or It's not even just that God loves us. It's that God sent his son to die in our place as a sacrifice for sin. And the bronze altar points to that reality. No one could go into the tent symbolising heaven without first going to the altar for a sacrifice to be made. Because that is the reality. No one can get to heaven without going to the cross of Christ first and finding forgiveness there. The only way was via the altar. And the only way in for us is via the cross, is through Christ's sacrifice. There's one last section before we close. The first priestly duty. Keep the line shining. I will read this to us, verse 20 and 21. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may be regularly set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil, that is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall tend to it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. This last section, if you think about it, seems a bit out of place. We've been slowly working our way out from the Holy of Holies to the Holy Place to the outer courtyard. And now suddenly we step from the outer courtyard back into the tent with the lamps that we've already had mentioned. Although it's to do with furniture, it's part of that sort of sandwich with the next two chapters uh, in the middle that really, this is a really bridge into that section. It begins with the people bringing things as the, the last section began with as did the section where we looked at the tabernacle as a whole. Here they're to bring pure beaten olive oil. Apparently, I looked into it this week, beaten is superior to pressed olive oil. It's like the M&S olive oil of the old world versus the sort of Aldi one. No offence if you shop at Aldi. Got fewer bits in it, apparently. Uh, that, that's the this one, not Aldi. <laughs> olive oil has been very... But that fits, doesn't it, in terms of it being the high-end olive oil. This is to be used in the holy place. It's to be used in the tent uh, to the far west. Only the best was to be used. And the priests, were told, would have to bring it in morning and evening. As God had set up the world to have morning and evening in the first place. Here, though, it's evening and morning, because that's how Jews counted their days from the evening to the morning. And as we think about how God deals with us, it does fit in. Because actually what's brought in for the first time is the idea of priests. We've been talking about priests in the previous passages and what they did with the furniture. But actually the passage itself hasn't mentioned priests yet, really. The only priests mentioned so far at this point in the Bible have actually been outside Israel. Melchizedek, the priest king in Genesis. Jethro, the priest of Midian. They've actually been told in Exodus 19 that there will be a kingdom of priests. 
When there were sacrifices to be performed in chapter 24, it's the young men that do it. No mention of priests there. There was a mention of priests back in chapter 19, where we're told that the priests were to consecrate themselves, but still not come up the mountain. But as we said at that point, it's unclear who that group was. Perhaps it was those who brought the sacrifices up to that point, usually the firstborn in the family. But there's no formal priesthood until this point. But we're told here that Aaron and his sons are to serve as priests, tending to the lamp in the holy place, making sure it continually keeps burning. Morning and evening, morning and evening they have to do it. And it's a statue forever. Now that bothers some people when we start to statue forever. But at the same time, the phrase has been used uh, of the three festivals they were to keep. And in the next chapter, it will be used for the priest's undergarments. Hebrews 9 understands them like this. It says this. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but deal only with the food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. In other words, these commandments are for that whole age, but the tabernacle and temple are gone. Sacrifices for sin have been fulfilled by Christ. There's no lamp to light. The light is now seen, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, in the work of the Spirit shining the light of the gospel into the hearts of believers, that we may behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And in that sense, there is a way in which this ministry continues on. All of us as ministers of the gospel seek to see the light of the gospel shone across the world. We're involved in keeping that light shining, aren't we? Telling people of the way into God's presence. Telling people that the only way is through Christ. Telling people that their journey to heaven begins at the foot of the cross. It's like that old hymn, isn't it? There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. That is a door that is open and you may go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. We keep that gospel light shining. We keep our lamps burning until the green broom comes back for the wedding feast, until Christ returns. We're to keep preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth. And just like it was no longer the few that had access to the Father in Exodus, well, 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 it was in Exodus, it's not in the New Testament, so too it's no longer the few that have this mission. We share it together, it's something that we do together. So we keep on telling the gospel to our friends, to our family, to our colleagues, to our school friends, to whoever will listen. We take the opportunities God gives us to bring that gospel light to others. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would do his work of shining that true light into their hearts. And what I want to leave you with is just to think, is that what our lives are pointed at? Does that take centre stage in our lives, loving and serving God, being about his mission in the world? Now, I'm not suggesting you sort of arrange your furniture around a Bible, uh, or instead of a TV or a games console, or a phone. But at the same time, I sort of am. We've learned from the tabernacle that what is most precious to God is most central. Is that true in our lives, even if not in our living rooms? Or does something else take centre stage? Is there something becoming more precious to us than the gospel? What do we do if our light, the light of our witness, is dimmed or stopped altogether? That light isn't shining. Well, there's a way back to God 
from the dark paths of sin, there's a door that is open, and you may go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. We go back to the cross. The cross isn't just where we begin, is it? The cross is what goes with us through our lives. At the cross, we find mercy, forgiveness, and a fresh start. Where we have failed, Christ has conquered. It's dealt with, done, forgiven. So what we need to do as believers is look to what lies ahead. How can we keep that light shining in the future? What's the setup of our lives going to be this week, this day, this year? Will it centre on Christ and his mission, or on something else? Well, let's pray that God would shine that gospel light into our hearts afresh, that we may see the glory of God in the face of Christ in you, and live for him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the way that you set things up in the tabernacle to teach us. Father, thank you so much for Christ's sacrifice on the cross, the only way that we may enter. But Father, help us never to think then that we're done with the cross. Father, help us to keep going back when we fail, when we sin. And Father, keep us taking out that message of the cross to the world around us. We pray again this afternoon for the Victorian Fair. Father, pray that we would keep that light shining. And we'd shine it here in Otley and that your Holy Spirit would do his work and enlighten people uh, that they might see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.